This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies, Lund University. In October 2011, CTR hosted a symposium with the name From Malcolm X to El Haj Malik El Shabazz, The Legacy of an American Icon. And more than half a century after his death, the radical message and civil rights struggle of Malcolm X, or El Haj Malik El Shabazz, has not lost its influence or significance. Rather the opposite. His message has reached a global audience, and for many people and organizations, his legacy is more vital and relevant than ever. Malcolm X's legacy, then, can no longer be confined only to American cultural politics, Many marginalized groups around the world, from Sri Lanka to Sweden and the Middle East, have become inspired by his radical critique and his ability to speak truth to power. You will now be listening to a presentation by Emin Poljaviric on the topic of the critical method of Malcolm X. Poljaviric is Associate Professor of Sociology of Religion, Uppsala University. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you, uh, all you, for being here. Uh, extremely excited. This is the first time I'm presenting something on, on Malcolm X, actually. I hadn't done that before. I, I've written, and I've read, and i listened, and I thought about it, but I never actually uh, presented on the, on the topic. So now, what is this critical thing? So if we speak about critical method, we have to speak about critical theory, because m- method has to be connected to some type of theory. And then what is the theory? Well, it's just a template. It's a mental template upon which you hang those facts that you find in the, in the real world, if you wish, social reality, as I uh, wish to call it. So this is then, what is it then? Well, critical, if you have something, something critical, then you will think, well, it's not only to find out, to know about things, to explore, but it's also to add another dimension. And that is what? Well, to go beyond explaining, but also it suggests that we need to have a responsibility as, a, as an observer. Be, we can, it can be an academic scholar, whoever it is, but have a responsibility to critique, to, to see this kind of a normative dimension. That means it essentially comes from Marx, because he said philosophy up to my date was all about observing the world. And he said, now it's time to observe and change the world. Now, that's the kind of a proto-critical theory uh, uh, perspective. Then this kind of critical theory developed later on in 1950s and 60s in different ways. But just to kind of give you a background, what does this mean? And then we have critical method. Well, that's the, then the way to uh, understand the world or to kind of the, the way to acquire the sense perceptions by which you understand the world. So it's a technique or way of Tao or Sharia, if you wish, in Arabic, to understand. And this is uh, this kind of a... Critical in this sense would mean that you are being self-reflective. You, you question yourself. And this, I did that in this um, chapter in this book. I tried to question my own 
presuppositions. Being of a Sunni background, I would question nation of Islam. That's ridiculous. I mean, if you think about the theological presuppositions from the Sunni perspective or Shiite perspective or even Christian perspective, you would say this is this is not really kosher or halal or you know Allah. The theological um, construction of nation of Islam goes against everything that you would think mainstream uh, Islam would stand for. Mainstream meaning Shiite and Sunnis, even Sufis and so on and so forth, right? So, but then I have to be critical of my own position. I said, well, look, Nation of Islam, reading upon it, trying to understand it, speaking to African-Americans outside of the U.S. when I was, for instance, in, 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 in Edinburgh, in Scotland, on my postdoc, I met African-Americans speaking about these issues. And, and they were told, they were telling me, look, man, you have to understand that Elijah Muhammad and Nation of Islam were great for African Americans. And this guy was a Sunni Muslim, was a convert no, he was even born in a Sunni Muslim family, African American guy from New York. And he said, You have to understand Elijah Muhammad was a good man because he woke the collective of African Americans from the deep held sleep. He showed them that they can be something. Right? Well, there are some other figures before him as well, but specifically here. Elijah Muhammad was praised by this Sunni Muslim guy, young guy. He was a PhD student in Edinburgh at, at the time I was there. So now, this suggests then, this kind of critical method that I'm trying to explore from Malcolm X, that we need to be aware of, of this observers, whoever, if we are or somebody else, what is this observer's uh, biases? Because social science and humanities are not without a perspective. Right. Here in Sweden, in, uh, uh, as Anders was pointing out, you will, you will be a scholar of Islamic studies where you bring a certain perspective to this. It's oftentimes a secular perspective. <laughs> you would say, oh, look, these guys, I don't believe in the stuff, what they're doing, but, you know, but I want to understand it from a secular perspective. Now, if you come from a religious perspective and try to do the same thing, is that legitimate or not? Regard you use the same technique, you use the same theory and method. Is that legitimate? And there's this kind of a discussion here, plus or minus, is it or not? This is something for you to discuss. I'm not going to, going to go into it. So this dynamic interaction between the self, the one who is observing, and what we perceive as social reality is something which is changing all the time. I observe it in one way now, but I, I might do it differently in 10 years' time. And you have to be self-reflexive of that change. Now, this case study that I'm trying to do, and perhaps maybe even formulate in, a, in an article, starts with this premise, this kind of a assumption. And that is that Malcolm X's revolutionary activism is all about white supremacy. When they accuse Malcolm X in, during his lifetime and later on, and even today, they would say, look, this guy was extreme in the sense he promoted violence. It's like, and he himself answered that assumption. He said, I do not promote violence. And he would question, why? What, by any means necessary, is not that not promoting violence? Well, he said, I promote self-defense. I'm not, I'm not. They are promoting we should go and burn churches or whatever it might be, government building. I promote self-defense. And if that involves violence in a process, well, yeah, sure. But it's not proactively going out and promoting violence. So that, for instance, is how even today when we read or when we kind of 
engage in a, in, in a social uh, debate, you will also have to be critical of how questions are framed, so to say. So he was consistent in his activism against white supremacy. That's a, that's a constant, so to say. Everybody's talking about how he changed and this and that. But he was, he was very consistent from 1948, right? until he died in 65. He went through many phases, but he, uh, and he, and he kept what was consistent with his claims. Well, there was, this was this claim of freedom, right? Justice and equality in that order. I've, uh, uh, reading his uh, diary, you would have this constantly throughout his diary in this last two years of his life, or year and a half. He would say, look, this freedom, uh, E, J, what? E. F, I'm sorry, FJE. So freedom, just equality. And that's something which he acquired from the Nation of Islam. That was their political, theoretical approach. We fight or we work for freedom and we work for justice thereafter. And thereafter we can talk about some equality. Because if you don't have this freedom to feel as you are on your own, freedom from oppression, freedom of from uh, different types of... Uh, uh, injustices, then you cannot really prosper. They cannot be equal if you are not free, if you wish. Now, it's a huge topic, of course, but I just focus on the freedom part and how Malcolm X thought about the freedom part and what tools and what components he used throughout his, um, especially in the, in the uh, end, um, his last years of his life. So these are, then the, there are these kind of transformations we can speak of, different phases and different contexts within which he worked. So there is a continuous move then from, from uh, fighting against racial supremacy framed within the NOI theology. Right? It's framed in a different way than in, in, uh, in leftist ideology or uh, Sunni Muslim uh, ideology, if you like, political Islam ideology, to kind of recognition of religious and racial diversity as a reality, but not only diversity as a reality, but also that different races can exist on their own terms, but there needs to be equality. And in order for, to get equality between uh, uh, understanding between different races, then you have to have some freedom. And you have to kind of, you have to take it by any means necessary. That's the kind of gist of it. And then he goes and to restate of a hodgepodge and a mixture of his different amalgamate of different understandings, what can be understood as a critical method. Then he kind of, he learns throughout his life, his activist life, I should say, which is also based on his life experiences before his activist life. It's, it comes very clearly through the, the autobiography which is, you know, so the document which was perhaps not fully autobiographical, but also edited heavily by Alex Haley, for instance. That's a, a huge scholarly discussion about how autobiographical um, the book is. So now, this process of transformations goes into two, as I see it then, into two strands in the end. That his critical method consists of, and those two strands are to critique the domination. This is all connected to the freedom part of his political thought. So you have this kind of critique of, the dom of domination of what? Of white elites, 
in the U.S., but not only white elites in the U.S., but also of the U.S. itself as a dominating power globally. The power who promotes itself to be liberal for freedom, for self-determination of all people, but still dominates other people, especially black and brown people around the world. So that's one strand. And the other one, so you can critique it, you can critique the domination, but you can also what? Provide, or formulate at least, this practice of liberation. So my chapter in that book was all about the practice. How did he practice that? I call it self-liberation. Of course, it's never self-liberation, but you know, it sounds good. Is that powerful? Is that smart to, to, to kind of take whatever signals, whatever whatever tools he's been provided by different groups and different uh, environments that he was traveling through and say, I will self-liberate. That was the, 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 the core of Malcolm, as I understand it, the core of his thought. And that's why he's so timeless. Why do we speak now about Malcolm? I mean, 53 years after his death, we still speak about this. Because that means, that means something. Only that fact will, uh, will, will make us think the, some of these things through. So the first strand, then, critique of domination. Well, look, he said, freedom has to be fought for both on a personal level, but also on a collective level. His audience was always, always, on a, I'm sorry, his, a collect, his concern for a collective was always 22 million African-Americans living in the US in, in his time, in his period. That was his primary concern. And he would do anything to liberate the 22 million African Americans in the U.S. That was his, his, if you listen to his speeches, if you read his interviews, he would always say, that, that is my focus. And what can I do? I will do anything to kind of help them out. That's why this kind of a push for black nationalism. Because that was the two, that was the dominant frame of reference by which collectives around the world would get free. And he saw, look, African nations, they get free. How? By fighting. So he's all, all the time his references, no other, no other, as I understand it, as I see, no other civil rights move, uh, movement leader in the US was referring so much to the international example as he did. Martin Luther King is, of course, one of the legends and, and remains much more popular, much more accepted than Malcolm X. But he never referred to that level of international cooperation as Malcolm X. So he, his audiences were the world, but his concern was at home. But also on a national level, of course, but international level, something which was quite unique in his, uh, in his case, in, 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 for, for his time. But first and foremost, of the mind. That means to liberate the mind. Oftentimes we hear this now, to decolonize the mind. That's the kind of uh, that activist voice among many young scholars who say, we need to decolonize, we need to think differently than we've been thought. Why is the European, Eurocentric way of studying social reality, why is that dominant? Don't we have some some African ways of studying social reality, or some Asian, or South American, or indigenous ways. And then you can see that literature is coming up now. 
You have very much uh, indigenous anthrop anthropology. Uh, you have different kinds of constellations and formulations uh, of, of critique of uh, Western scholarship in social sciences and humanities. Now, practice of liberation, I would say. That is one quote that, that I think many quotes stick out. It's a good thing that, I'm there. But, but this one thing is that we declare our right on this earth to be a man, to be a human being, to be respected as a human being. That is the appeal, and he says, I'm appealing to what? To human rights all the time. That's the discourse that he believes America is promoting, but America is not practicing. And he was, I mean, trying to look at it objectively, he was right. <laughs> Why fight for civil rights if you already have a civil right secured in the Constitution? That means that it's a, it's a, it's a tension there, some obviously. And this, to us, me, it's very uh, kind of uh, self-explanatory. Yeah, it's good. I mean, it's fine. But at that time, this was viewed as very militant, very revolutionary, very uh, disturbing, very... Um, ra radical, extreme, calling for terrorism, maybe even. Now, to liberate, as I said before, to liberate and to bring a freedom to his own constituency of 22 African Americans, 22 million African Americans in the U.S., he would say we need to get some help from the outside because obviously the government will not give us that by on its own accord. So let's go. Why? So then he said, look, we need to ally ourselves with the dark nations, as you would call it, of the world, in Asia and Africa. So here you can see the, uh, the whole dark world wants peace. When I was in Africa last year, I was deeply impressed by the desire of our African brothers for peace. But even they agree that there can be no peace without freedom from colonialism, foreign occupation, foreign domination, oppression, exploitation. This is 1960. In 1960, he was still a minister of Nation of Islam. But this could have very much been uh, said in 1964. That I, by this, I want to show his consistency and his, his vision of freedom, which stretches far beyond the US context. Now, what is the role of a religion in his thought? And this is one of the um, timelines from that book I told you. So this is uh, William David Hart, one of the experts on Malcolm X, uh, where he kind of shows these different periods uh, of Malcolm X's religious affiliation, or let's call it uh, affinity. Doesn't have to be that he belonged to those traditions, but it's approximately what we can read from his biography, from his speeches, and so on and so forth. So here you see from 1948 to 63, there is this kind of a um, Islamicate uh, uh, dimension. He enters into something new, something different, from various um, Christian denominations. He goes into that mode of, of, of uh, Islamicate mode, I would say. Because NOI and the Nation of Islam would then hurl on him a... Uh, a different way of seeing the world, different way of understanding his own situation, 
which was quite captivating for him. I mean, both in the movie and then in the autobiography, you, you can sense, it's very well described, I think, it's kind of a transformation period, how he went from this devil figure to a devotee of Elijah Muhammad, and how he viewed Elijah Muhammad as being someone who did an impossible thing to transform such a, such a feral person or personality to a uh, person who would submit himself to God. And in that, it's like the, the, the hardest thing was what? To do sajda, to go on the floor and prostrate with his head on the floor. I was like, that's humiliating. I never did that. It kind of describes that in very kind of vivid and colorful language. Anyway, he enters it and sees this kind of Islamic tradition as something which he would see as a tool, both spiritual, to kind of free himself, to find a way to free himself from white domination and from Christianity, which he associated with white domination. And that lasts to his death uh, with a brief break from Nation of Islam just before he died, in what, 11 months or 12 months. Now, there's one a scholar in the US who is, who is extremely, um, he himself is a Sunni Muslim, a, a Islamic scholar, I would say. He's not just a Sunni Muslim. He's an Islamic scholar of Islamic law, Sherman Jackson, who, who studied and formulated this tradition, not only him, but one of the people who was kind of in that, in that um, circle of scholars, African-American scholars. He said, look, there's this kind of a black, black religious tradition. It's been there all the time, all along, since the, after, since the, the, the slaves arrived to the U.S. There was kind of a, something undercurrent which was not really jiving and totally uh, uh, in sync with what, uh, what we would see as uh, white Christianity. And I saw it myself. I went to black church in Georgia, and I went to the, uh, the Baptist church, which was white in Georgia as well. Very different sermons. And now is that different Christianity? I don't know, but I saw this, I mean, to my very um, amateurish eyes in terms of Christian tradition, I would say it's a very different mood, if you wish, in the, in the church, in a white church and a black church. And then I went to the Lutheran church in New York, and it was even, even uh, more different, so to say. So there's this kind of a cultural, if you want, religiously cultural, uh, um, culturally different religious expression. Now, theological, I don't want to go into that, but definitely something that, which sets the mood, right? So I, I am convinced by Sherman Jackson when he speaks, not only because he makes a good argument in his, uh, in his writings, but I, I also experienced that myself, so to say. So there's this, he said, there is this two um, um, consistent themes in black religious tradition, and that is this salvation. Salvation is always there. Well, that's in all monotheistic religions, I would say. Well, especially in, in Christianity and Islam. And there's this also struggle for liberation and dignity. It's always there. Through religious practice and belief, we can also attain our liberty. In this world or the next, regardless, but this uh, idea of liberty is always there. While maybe in, in, in white Christianity or white Christian um, denominations and practices in the U.S., maybe it's not that emphasized as in this kind of a black religious tradition. 
And of course, you would understand intuitively why that would be the case, I mean, historically. Now we have the whole field of African religions, which has developed as, as its own field. So we have not, and African religious scholars of African religions in the US study also Islam and all, all different types of offshoots of Christianity and Islam in the US and, and Africa. Now, Islam in this sense for, uh, for Malcolm X was some, I understand it to be a, a foothold by which he could ground in himself in a authentic, as he saw it, because he, write, he writes that in his letters and his, in, his, in his diary, to be authentic. What? Man, African, religious person, and so on. So he said, or at least in not so many words, he would say the nation of Islam expressed and offered authenticity which he did not have before to be something which is special, something which is different from the oppressor. And, but it, go, it also gave him dignity because it said, you are better than those who oppress you. And that there is the kind of a supreme wisdom uh, uh, idea of, uh, of uh, uh, God being a black man, for instance, right? That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, we are part of being God. I mean, it, we are godly, if you wish. That, you know, gives you a, quite a boost. If you, you know, into that type of stuff, that gives you a boost, so to say. And then he continues with that type of uh, um, transformation into mainstream, as we would say, at that time at least, mainstream Sunni tradition. And I, I, can, I have something more to say about that. But, but this Sunni, for about a year and a half before he died, this kind of idea of oneness, right? an eternal God, that this is creating this supreme being, but we are not supreme, we are separate, of course. That's a theological kind of transformation that it has to do. It's a theological jump, if you wish. And he did that. But he did, he did not do that by himself. He, he had help. And this is one of the key persons who helped him, so to say, to do that. So when we, he went to Mecca for pilgrimage, he met this guy in, uh, oftentimes when, even today, it was back then, even today, when the pilgrims come to Saudi Arabia to perform pilgrim, uh, pilgrimage, Hajj, they go through Jeddah. And he went to Jeddah and he met this man who was, uh, he was one of the founders of Arab Uni uh, Union, uh, right, let's call it, Arab League it's called, not Union, Arab League. So Abdurrahman Hassan Azzam. So this guy wrote this book as well in Arabic, but it was later translated, and he obviously read it, The Eternal Message of Muhammad. And he said that was transformative to him. I mean, he saw this, this as being a kind of an eye-opener in comparison or in contrast to the NOI, very limited, very mm, narrow understanding of uh, spirituality and religion. And especially because his experience with Elijah Muhammad being his kind of facade, his break with NOI was very traumatic for him. And you can see that both in autobiography and also later on when he speaks about this just after. The Declaration of Independence was one of his speeches in 1964 where he kind of explains this. And you can see it's hurt. He's hurt. And in the movie you can see, of course, the dramatization, but you can see that he cannot believe 
that Elijah Muhammad did what he deemed to be immoral deeds with these secretaries and he had children out of wedlock and this and that. So one of these scholars of Malcolm X said he didn't break with an NOI, he shattered his relationship. And shattered, I think it's quite correct because it's so uh, dramatic. So this guy then becomes somehow a replacement for Elijah Muhammad, I would say, at least in a religious sense. He teaches him the basics of Islam, introduces him to this thought. He was not his teacher, so to say, they didn't have a teacher-pupil relationship, but he introduces him in a very um, powerful way, as he explains. This guy wasn't an Islamist or anything like that. He was very much Arab nationalist, but he, he had very much this kind of a Sunni affiliation. So. So he read the book before he did Hajj, and in that sense, he, he, he felt fully sun sunnized, if you wish. Became. Now he said this, he said, I believe in religion, but a religion that includes political, economic, and social action designed to eliminate, well, in this sense, injustice, so freedom, injustice, and make a paradise here on earth while we are waiting while we are waiting or the other. So it continues there on, what does that mean? But, but here is the, the point with this quote is to demonstrate that he finds these things in Islam, because that's what uh, Azam is talking about in the eternal message of Muhammad. He said, this is the comprehensive. It offers you all the bits and pieces to, so for you to can both live spiritual life authentically as an individual, but also as a collective, but also as a what? As a state, as a political, economic, a community. And that's very much the, uh, the message of uh, uh, what we today would call Islamists, right? That was, not very, that's not, that was not a very controversial thing at that time in the Arab world. They obviously had Arab nationalism, which was uh, the main frame of reference by the political elites in the Arab world, except the Gulf. And you would have religion. Yeah, of course, religion is extremely important because that's, that is your cultural and spiritual and political frame of reference. That's what kind of keeps us together. There are Islamicate kind of uh, expression. So he said now, look, if we flip this, so uh, being a Muslim would also liberate us from the domination. We could not, we don't feel anymore uh, inferior to the dominator, but this could also be something useful for the, for the white America. If they become Muslim, this is obviously a very romanticized view of, of Islam and religion and tradition, of course. But that's his kind of, uh, this fervor of a new convert saying, look, you guys, the whole society can benefit because they would erase these racial boundaries. That's what Azam writes in, in the internal message as well. That's what people in Egypt, when he comes to Egypt, all these Muslims and Egyptians are of very different shades, very light, very dark, and all in between. He goes to West Africa, he sees, you know, people of all different shades as well, and they are Muslim. So, wow, this is, this is amazing because Elijah Muhammad said, Whites cannot be Muslims. They cannot enter Mecca. Not only, but by their essence, by their nature, they cannot. Because they are devils. That was the explicit message he got. And he said, what? I went to Mecca and I saw all these white people there. How come? 
this empirical evidence that he was wrong, <laughs> if you wish. And they called each other brother and this and that. And he said this was not enough to just to listen to them speaking. But their attitude wasn't white, he said. And what does that mean? Well, in the U.S., and it was my own experience to see there's this invisible boundary between whites and blacks in Georgia at the time I was there. They would be polite to each other, but they would not act the same when they're with one another. Because I was with both with white Americans and spent some time with them and also with Africa. They would talk, they have, and then you would see them together, but they would not behave the same at all. And I said, what is this? Why? Say they have different culture. That was the that was the oftentimes the answer. They had different culture, we have different culture. We respect each other, we all, you know, whatever. But we just don't hang out. And then I brought that that lens by which I try to see how things work here in my society. And I see that more and more in these past 20 years. That's what we call here what the suburbs and you know, Swedes and immigrant areas and this and that. And people say, we're culturally different. We cannot, we speak differently, we, we dress differently, we gesture differently, we're interested in different types of things, and we don't hang out with each other. Here, religion as a way out of domination, not only for the oppressed, but also for the oppressor. All right? That was, that's quite, that's quite interesting. Now he took a course in a crash course in Islam in Sunni Islam in Cairo in '64. <laughs> it's very uncomfortable, <laughs> as you can see in the picture. But he took a crash course and he received a certificate. It's some. It's important to have kind of a mm, credential, religious credential. I studied under this shape and I, you know, for three weeks, and now I have a certificate that I'm a, a what we would call missionary. That. So I can preach Islam back in America. Because I have the basics and I can, you know, that's, it's legit, so to say. And then his reflection on the cultural kind of hospitality that he experienced abroad. All of these things shatter his image and his, because he's willing to put himself out. That's the point of this. He's willing to put himself out to experience and to see. I can tell you myself. Being around the world and traveling and living abroad and this and that opens your mind. It just, it's, just, it's just a fact. It opens your mind. And I think there are studies of, uh, of, of people, uh, difference of perception of the other, whoever that might be, of people who have not traveled and those people who have traveled abroad, outside of the cultural sphere. And you would say that there is kind of empirical evidence that there is this... this uh, difference in how they perceive the other once they come back to their own uh, area where they are from. Anyway, that, that's one um, in one of his speeches where he kind of sees that, that all people of all colors can communicate uh, in a way which is not mm, that of domination uh, or dominating. And then he goes back to the U.S. and brings, I think, that's why I have a question mark here, that this, one of these guys called Ahmed Hassoun. I'm not sure if that is the one on the picture. But he's at least one of the um, uh, Sudanese uh, religious 
uh, leaders, if not scholars, that followed him back to the U.S. in the end when he established a Muslim, I'm sorry, uh, a Muslim Mosque Incorporated. And this guy was paid by the Muslim World League, which was the uh, at that time um, situated in Jeddah. It's kind of a organization. The Saudis had start. It started uh, 1962. This uh, Muslim World League, and this is 1964. So he said, you know, we need to link ourselves. That was kind of his. Uh, we need to take take this struggle abroad and link ourselves to Muslims who were about that time around 700 million. And he said that one in one of his speeches. I don't know if that's correct. But he said, we need to link ourselves to them, and also we need to link ourselves to the black and brown people in Asian Africa. We need to kind of get our allies from the outside. So his political consciousness was, again, uh, very much global and international. Well, this picture should have been uh, before uh, Azam, because this was his entrance. This was a point of entrance. This, was a, this guy was a gatekeeper to uh, his uh, contacts in the Middle East. And this guy is rel relatively unknown, uh, Mahmoud Yusuf uh, Shawarbi. Obviously, he lived in the U.S. and he, he uh, um, in New York, and he actually met with Malcolm X. This guy was actually trying to include Nation of Islam in a fold of global Muslim kind of ummah. He went to preach to them and speak to them, to different ministers and so on and so forth. And, and he was proactive in that sense to kind of say, look, these guys are good. They are, have a, a kind of similar political goals of equality and, you know, this and that. Let's, let's uh, cooperate with them. He didn't succeed at force swinging Elijah Muhammad towards that. But he didn't, it's, to me it's strange, he didn't see this uh, a theological problem as relevant at all. It's quite interesting. Anyway, uh, he was one who connected uh, Malcolm X to the people in Middle East, in, in Saudi Arabia and in Egypt. And he was Egyptian himself. So he wrote this, th uh, this uh, text, Islam fi America, and it's, it was translated recently by one of these uh, researchers uh, to Islam in America, where he describes actually, um, where, she des uh, where the, the uh, Shawarbi describes uh, what he observes in the in the U.S. and he doesn't really call nation he doesn't use that name in his uh, text. Actually, I read the text. And he uses the name um, Black Muslims in America. That's how he labels them. For some odd reason, I would like to know why was that expression put in that way. Obviously, to minimize, I suppose, the um, the differences and to to open up for maybe future cooperation and so on. Now this is this um, temple number seven in New York where it was later on dubbed to um, Muslim Mosque Incorporated and now it's just called uh, Malik al-Shabazz Mosque. Oh, sorry. It's still there. It's still active. There's a school as well. Uh, uh, attached to it. So this is one of the legacies that is still present physically. And at Lennox Avenue, that was before, it's now called Malcolm X Boulevard uh, in, in the same place. So. so what's the point of all of this then? Well, my idea, when I thought about this presentation, was really to, to see and understand, to widen our understanding of Malcolm X. So oftentimes, the, 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 this thing in Gothenburg, Pantrana, or 
it's very limited understanding. I mean, they, people, and I understand that. Of course, you didn't have time to just go through it and read and say, well, you know, to philosophize about Malcolm X. But just take that most radical thing that you see, which kind of moves you emotionally, and say, look, I'll go with it. I'm, I should be radical as he is in, uh, in how I express myself. So we need to, you know, people talk about freedom. And then you would say, are not our youth free in Sweden? Where, where are they locked in somewhere? I mean, they can go out and so on and so forth, and they can move around. So, but look, there is this perception of youth trapped mentally, or maybe sometimes physically, in the suburbs, where they feel trapped. I spoke to youth who go out from the suburbs of Stockholm, downtown Stockholm, and say, I feel lost. Emotionally, I, my palms sweat, I'm, I'm in distress. I don't feel at home at all here. And they retreat to, to the suburbs where they feel at home. People, like, the people don't look at me differently. They don't look at me and think I'm a thief or I'm a thug or something like that. And I said, it's quite interesting, an interesting kind of perception, but I think it should be studied. And then they read Malcolm X, so they kind of compose songs against the society in general, and you know, they're um, generally aggressive against the majority society. Is this right or wrong? I don't know. You just look at the perception of those youth and say, look, is that a... And they, and they see Malcolm X as, a, as an inspiration. But I think that, as youth do often do, they miss the, the point, they miss the larger picture of Malcolm X, of course. And that, it's not strange, it's not a bad thing. So, so now the point, another point is to increase understanding of this continue, continuous struggle for liberation. Because obviously, as Anish pointed out earlier, there are people everywhere, you know, even in, in, in Arab world and in Asia. I saw one of these graffiti in Istanbul, right? Have you seen it? Right, right. No, there was, they, they tried to write Malcolm, but it, became, it got out like Malcolm or something like that. But they tried to write Malcolm. But that means that his symbolic power of, of his personality is, is greater than the person. Obviously, because he's dead and he, this, his name is alive. Now, broadening our understanding of the impact of Malcolm X today, who is taking him seriously? Right? Now, the government has issued several times a stamp, a postal stamp right, of Malcolm X. They have street names of Malcolm X in various places in the US, not only in New York. They have... Um, People now take pride in him, of elites, I would say, you know, people in the government position, which is quite interesting. It was, I mean, if we go, if we dig deeper, I mean, even that, you see the kids in the suburbs, and then you have governments on the other side taking pride in, in Malcolm X. Now, as uh, Anders mentioned, Marable's book, which is, I think, it, it, it's a good. It's a good, uh, I think it's a good idea behind it to kind of demystify the, the, the personality because I'm not in, in that business of idealizing anybody as, as, an, you know, as, a, as an individual because we're all human and all humans sin and we're all sinners and we all have our faults and secrets. But I think it's really something that we should think about. There are so many different perspectives by which to understand him and his message and his activism. That's really endless, right? And then some people who want to conserve his image and say, well, he was always radical, he was always militant, and that's how we see him. 
And I think that's, that thing predominates, really. Because it's really hard not to, when you listen uh, to his speeches and he, the power behind them, you will always understand him to be a very militant guy. But now it's, so, it's viewed as being, you know, by any means necessary, just, just an expression which is made perhaps most memorable by him. I mean, if you say by any means necessary to anybody in the world that knows anything, they will, they will try to connect it to, you know, they are some, somebody said it, uh, you know. Now, why would we want to understand Malcolm uh, personally? And I think we should all ask ourselves, is there any, any point? Not only Malcolm, I'm thinking of any activist person of any creed or color, you should know. Jesus was radical. You would have people in the U.S. saying, look, Jesus was a radical. Muhammad was a radical. He tried. Why was he a radical? He was a revolutionary. He changed the society. That's really revolutionary, isn't it? That's, that's the prime definition of what revolutionary means, to change the current order to something totally different. That's the kind of gist of what revolution means, to transform. If you, you know, take the R.E. out of this evolution, right? So this kind of, you have to kind of, Force the change upon. So I think this is a question. Why would we want to understand Malcolm X's critical method and activities? Yeah. And one answer could be what uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie said in a, in a very famous TED talk. And this is the, I think this is true for so many things. The single story creates stereotypes. And the problem with stereotypes is not they're not true or they're untrue but that they are incomplete. So this is one way of seeing it, one way of understanding. And we, that's what I think, that's how I understand scholarship within social sciences and humanities is really to offer multiple stories, to offer multiple stories, because multiple stories and multiple experiences will enrich us in our understanding of what we understand to be social reality. And that would also, in turn, I think, decrease the tensions, both politically and socially, regardless where we are. And that's good. That's good for, for our coexistence. Thank you. <laughs>